never do, Chris? We never introduce ourselves. We never give anyone an indication of who, whom is who talking. I guess I assumed How you, do you were say uh, famous enough. Well, I was listening to Pod Save America the other day, and I noticed that even they now will go, this is John speaking. This is like the first time they do it. It's like putting a Chiron up on a TV yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking for this episode, when you do your intro, after that I'll say, I'm Jason, and you'll say, I'm Chris. Okay. Uh, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Full Cast and Crew, the arguably the most important honor that a film can be bestowed. Keep going. Welcome to another episode of Full Cast and Crew, arguably the greatest honor that can be dis- bes- See, now you got me. What? Listen, performing under pressure is half the battle here. I mean, you're prof- either you're a professional podcaster or you're not. Welcome to another episode of Full Cast and Crew, where we bestow the highest honor that can be bestowed upon a film by having us, Chris and Jason, or Jason and Chris, go down the rabbit hole of the Full Cast and Crew section of its IMDb page, mining it for strange trivia, unlikely connections, weird anecdotes, and anything else that you might find to make up a film. Wow. You were so close, and then you lost it at the end. (laughs) I'm Jason. And I'm Chris. See, that way people will know who's speaking. Yeah, I think already this is a great innovation. This week, we are here to talk about The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is the new Coen Brothers movie. Yes. Available on Netflix and in the theaters in a little bit of 2018 for you. little backstory to the movie before we jump in on takes. Speaking to the Netflix kind of release strategy, originally it was an anthology series. There would be standalone little episodes. Um, and then the Coen brothers didn't want to do that, so it came out the way that it came out. Um, Although on that, I've actually read them say they don't know where that rumor came from, hmm. that they always intended it to be a film. Well, usually when the filmmakers say that, it means it came from the people putting up the money for the film, <laughs> and it was probably Megan Ellison and Annapurna <laughs> Pictures that had that idea. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I think it's funny because usually when you watch a Netflix series these days, at least I have this experience sometimes, uh-huh. I end up thinking to myself... You know, that would have been a good movie, but I didn't need eight or nine episodes of it. Yeah. With this, not to give any, not to tip my hand, I had the reverse feeling where I thought, oh, that would have been a good thing to watch an episode of at a time, but it didn't really have any point of being a movie. So anyway, Ballard Buster Scruggs, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, James Franco, Liam Neeson, Zoe Kazan, uh, Tom, Clancy, Waits. Tom Waits, Clancy Brown, David Krumholtz, Stephen Root. A typical cast of Coen Brothers uh, actors, including some new faces who I haven't seen work with Coen Brothers right. before. I was thinking specifically of Zoe Kazan and uh, Bill Heck, two Loves. younger. Love Bill Heck. Uh, two younger folks that I like I hadn't seen them work yes. with, and they seem to really get their style. So the first of the six sections uh, is called "The Ballad of Buster Scruggs," starring Tim Blake Nelson. What are your thoughts on Tim Blake Nelson as an actor? I love him. Maybe it was Oh Brother, Where Art That when right. I first saw him. And his physical look, his style, his aesthetic seems to be perfectly aligned with, with, what they're with doing. the Coen brothers. He was also in um, The Incredible Hulk, the reboot that had uh, Edward Norton. Is that the Ang Lee one? That's not the Ang Lee one. <laughs> <laughs> it was some guy. <laughs> the Ang Lee one was Eric Bana. Uh, but this is one with Which Edward one's Norton. the good one? Is there is You're, there a good one? I mean, well... I like them both. I right. love the Angley one. Really? Yeah. Love. Love it. Yeah, because it's so it's so weird, <laughs> and it's got Nick Nolte and, and full Nick Nolte. Who's mode. the Who's the Hulk in Angley? Eric Bana. Oh, I like Eric Bana. Yeah. And who's the Hulk in um, the other one? The other one. Uh, Edward Norton. Well, and Tim Blake Nelson uh, is in that one, and okay, he was he was fine. He was good, but it it 
it was a little bit, which is ironic to say considering it's a big green monster, it was a little bit more realistic in tone, so it didn't seem to um, serve his cartoonish look and style as well as uh, the Coen Brothers. It's hard for me to think of seeing him in anything other than Coen Brothers yeah. content. Overall, I was mystified by the Ballad of Buster Scruggs as a collection of these six vignettes. I get that the intention is to have six stories about life in the American West and to approach it from a variety of different types of stories about mm -hmm. life during those times. But to me, it didn't have much reason for being other than kind of a business exercise. Like someone was willing to give them the money to do this. And so as writers and directors, they were excited to take advantage of the opportunity to marshal all the resources that they could marshal to bring to life something that apparently they'd been collecting these writings for 25 or 30 right. years. Um, after I watched the whole thing, I sort of started doing my usual kind of digging into the, how did this come to be? And I pretty rapidly arrived at that classic thing of just because you can doesn't always mean you should in the era that we're living in now with Netflix and uh, companies like Annapurna, for people who don't know, it's run by Megan Ellison, who's the daughter of Larry Ellison, who's a billionaire founder of Oracle, mm -hmm. who I believe he and she put up $200 million to form this production film production company. And great. They have funded a bunch of films that she wanted to make and that she wanted to see come to fruition. However, if you read the stories about the business, it seems like it's never been run like a business and it's in right. the process of going out of business, the cost overruns, um, making a lot of movies that just don't resonate with audiences. Um, and this seems to be one of the projects that was in the last kind of go around in 2016 to 2018 yeah. for Annapurna. So I think that's a part of the story of how this came to be too. Um, it feels like something I can't imagine getting made without that set of circumstances mm -hmm. surrounding it. I'm a little bit ambivalent about Netflix, Amazon, about these streaming services as production companies as well, and the the business model behind it. So much of it being data-driven and crunching the data and seeing like, is there a place for, for this and therefore we'll make it with sort of no eye to artistic merit. Yet at the same time, it does allow for a certain amount of experimentation because, you know, they give they give a lot more money to smaller filmmakers to to sort of take a shot. And I think that is a good. And so you have this these two facts that are just sort of hitting each other, which I think is appropriate considering uh, what this movie ultimately is. Um, I think what the movie is, is about has to do with the the collision of ideals and realism. With Annapurna specifically, anytime you, what did you say, Ellison, founder of Oracle. Oracle. Tech billionaires are not always good guys, but the the positive thing about something like that is the sort of excess and their, I don't know if it's a desire to fill uh, an art-shaped hole in his or her soul. There's a long tradition that goes back for as long as there's been money of like rich people being patrons of the arts. And I don't love that that's the way that it happens, but there is something positive. Like you, I don't know that I was as jazzed by this movie as apparently all the reviewers in the world Loved were. It. And everything that I read that was positive, like I could see it, but I don't know that I necessarily felt it. But I, again, went to like a 10 o'clock showing that didn't get out until past midnight. <laughs> Maybe that was it too. But Chris, it's streaming on Netflix for free. I know. So why'd you go to a showing? 
Honestly, because... You wanted to go to the movies. I wanted to go to the movies. Oh, good. As the filmmakers intended. We're starting to get into the era of the streaming services where the question is going to have to be asked, when you don't have film or movie professionals making decisions, do you get the best product? Mm -hmm. And I think this is an instructive movie in its own way where, I'm, listen, I'm there's enough going on that's worthy of recommendation in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I am glad that someone is paying the money to make it. However... That's separate from the fact that it's not an it's not a fully realized, engaged movie that really has much of a new point to it. However, when you look at it in a uh, a dollar sense kind of manner, I, I wonder if we're going to enter an era where the movies have to do well. Now, on Netflix, that's a different that has a different answer than it does in the box office. But it's always fun to visit the world of the Coen Brothers. I think the last great movie they made um, was probably No Country for Old Men in 2007. The movies that come after that, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit, Inside Lewin Davis, and Hail Caesar. I actually liked Hail Caesar. That was very funny. I liked, yeah. I liked it. Lewin Davis, we've talked about in another podcast. Yep. Not a fan personally. Uh, True Grit, okay. Good Western. Don't really remember it. Uh... Burn After Reading. The parts that I enjoyed, I enjoyed so much. I can't remember what the whole plot was, but I can remember sort of specific scenes or yes. bits of it. I find them to be incredibly funny. I like their oh, very funny, funny stuff yes. a lot better than their serious stuff. And, yeah. you know, when they blend the two, it can be great. I disagree with you. Like, I, I think Inside Lewin Davis was great. There you like the one. shit scene. I did. Well, we talked about <laughs> this. Look, and this, especially with the way that the uh, reviewers talked about Ballad of Buster Scruggs and... <laughs> You know, we left out, it's six vignettes, but it also is bookended with opening and closing an actual book. And there are these color plates. Yes. I'll cut in the silence when they show. When you can show cut the in the plates. lifting of the onion skin to reveal the color plates. Um, looking back on it and thinking about it, oh, I get it. And I understand what the reviewers were saying. And yes, these guys, boy, they really have a lot on their minds. Wait, so what, I'm sorry, what do you, what's your point about the book device? Why is that a, why is that an impressive narrative device for you? Well, I'll get to that in a sec, but I get that there, there, there was a lot going on. This was the, I think the problem with Hail Caesar as well. What it gets to ultimately at the end, I found it just a little bit too obtuse, too obtuse with Ballad of Buster Scruggs to hear people. If you really go deep, there is, there is something there but they've sort of like gotten old enough and established enough that they are like, they have transcended plot. And like, they don't have, they don't, they can, they're working. Is that ever a good thing for a filmmaker? I don't know for a filmmaker, but getting to the, the book plates, the plates are so visually pretty. And they're also the most sort of heightened dramatic moments. And of it's almost scene. like they're telling yeah. you, here's what the, the theme is of the thing. And, and here's what you should think about it. And it's sort of prepping you for it. And then you see it play out. The thing that I, liked about the style and I think worked best was the sort of weird humor of this beautifully shot West with the big full colors and then the sort of grotesqueness yeah. of the violence ramming yes. up against it, which is like the shit scene, the shit joke from Lewin Davis, but writ large. Yeah, but the shit joke in Lewin Davis, as we said before, is more of a joke on the viewer, which is what bothers me about it. I, I got the mordant tone in Lewin Davis. I get the I get what it was trying to yeah. be about. Um, it just didn't come together for me as a whole the way some of their other movies. And I'm, right. I, and some of two of two or three of their movies are among my probably five or six favorite movies of all time. I don't know. 
the device, the book, I found myself reading, trying to read the last paragraph because that sort of was more useful to me than what, what I was given visually yeah. in, the, in the moments to try and figure out what the hell just happened in some of them. And actually, it, it did change my thought about the, the scene called The Gal That Got Rattled. Yes. Seeing what that, that it was from the perspective of Mr. Arthur and yes. it was about what he was going to say to the other guy, the younger guy, was poignant. This, to me, and why it's a Western, it's so much about our conception of our history of the West and Westerns. You know, these guys are, you know, the, the Coen brothers are pretty postmodernist. You know, they're very, they like films and they, there's a lot of film references. So I think it has as much to do with the popular imagination and what, his, what we think of about the West, putting that against real life. And I thought what was an interesting thing about this was it goes one past something like The Unforgiven, the sort of revisionist Western, goes past it again and allows the romanticism to exist, but it juxtaposes it with, with its opposite. So they don't really mingle where they sort of get to a gray area. You just have the black and the white uh, very starkly there. I would take that one step farther. I would say that it's not so much about our conception of the West as much as it is our filmic conception of the West, our yeah. stories and books and movies about the West which to me felt like an important one step back jump from saying it's about our conception of the West. Because I think by now we know you can go and read very detailed what it was like portrayals of life during this time. You can bring to life Native American characters in a way that they have not been brought to life in the movies that are about the American West. I saw one article, of course, to your point about all the reviewers loving this movie, there was a very impassioned attack on the movie for its portrayal of Native Americans as, you say, this just vengeful, violent force which has no depth or substance to it, to which I say, yeah, but I mean, look what the white people are doing to each other in these vignettes. I mean, the brutality and the, the violence, the lack of mores is, <laughs> is more... Uh, is as represented on on the side of the white settlers and the people that were following. Yeah. So, the, but to my point, I think the reason why the Native Americans are presented the way they are in the couple of places where they appear, it's playing with the tropes of the movies about the American West. I don't think they're trying to make a definitive statement about life in the American West in the 1850s and how it really was. Well, let's just go through them yeah. uh, in order. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I was in right, right off the bat because that specific tone, the arch one step removed dialogue that Tim Blake Nelson was doing, talking to us as the viewers, yeah. the way it fucked with you where you're just dropped into this cowboy who's singing and playing guitar on a horse. And it plays for about a minute before you realize he's talking to you, the viewer. Yeah. Dan, can you see that big green tree where the water's running free and it's waiting there for you and me? Whoa! A song never fails to ease my mind out here in the West, where the distances are great and the scenery monotonous. Additionally, my pleasing baritone seems to inspirit old Dan here and keep him in good heart during the day's measure of hoof clops. Ain't that right, Dan? <laughs> Maybe some of y'all have heard of me. Buster Scruggs, known to some as the San Saba Songbird. I mentioned in another episode how I, you know, I didn't get enough Baroque kills in uh, <laughs> Pumpkinhead, but you know, the way that Clancy Brown's character shot himself yeah. three times, 
was so so good. Uh, for the listener, it's not. I don't. I'll, you know what? I'm gonna cut in the audio. Cut in the audio because it's so good. <laughs> Let's see if it translates. Well, what happens is Tim Blake Nelson is having a having a standoff with Clancy Brown's character, who is armed in a bar where you're supposed to turn in all your weapons at the door. Buster Scruggs has done so, but Clancy Brown uh, has not. I don't know what it is that's on the table. It's the table itself. It's the table itself, yeah. and he, he slams his hand down three times on the table, which causes... Clancy Brown's hand to jam the gun under his neck. He hits the the uh, <laughs> plank on the table. So if you can picture this, Tim Blake Nelson knocks it down, which makes the end that's by Clancy Brown go up. So it knocks his gun so that it yeah. shoots. He shoots himself in the face, in the chin. Yeah, uh, that's what I just said. Thank you for saying the exact thing I just said. Uh, you didn't use the words up and down. Wow. <laughs> After murdering this guy <laughs> in the bar, everybody is silent and we're. He starts oh, singing, great. charms everybody, everybody's singing along, and one person mourns this dead body. You know what I loved? Uh, when Tim Blake Nelson is singing after he gets killed, his character, spoiler alert, <laughs> Tim Blake Nelson's character, Buster Scruggs gets killed in the first vignette. When he gets killed, he's singing a duet. As Tim Blake Nelson sings his part of the duet, as he ascends to heaven, his voice is coming from far away in the sky to join in. It's just, it's such a little thing that's yeah. so brilliantly done, but it was great. I, I was all in on that. And then kind of the tone shift, thinking about it now, the way it was structured, I think it was pretty good because you start out from a pretty straight ahead comic place. And cartoonish. And cartoonish. And the next one near Algodones uh, with James Franco is similarly cartoonish and hilarious. I like that one. I thought the money blowing away was such a great Coen Brothers touch. Um, I love the arrows whizzing by. I don't know quite how they did that. There's yeah. like two arrows that shoot right by James Franco's head and they, they really conveyed the like trajectory shooting of the, right the shooting at you. at you. I don't know how they I did mean, that. If it were in 3D, yeah. they would probably get lawsuits. There's a great moment in the near Algodones uh, vignette where James Franco is about to be hung for the second time. And he has a great bit of dialogue uh, with the guy standing next to him, which hopefully you'll be able to cut in. Mm. First time. <laughs> so I love that. Yeah. And I loved the the uh, pot shot, is that what he calls it? Pan shot? Pan shot! Oh, yeah, yeah. So James Franco was firing at the bank teller who comes out wearing armor made of skillets and pans, and every time James Franco gets a shot at the guy's arms or body, which is covered by a pan, the guy gleefully cackles out, pan shot! Shout out to, uh, to Stephen Root, who I <laughs> ah, just so love in general, so but great. he was so fantastic in this because you kind of see where it's going, but he made that character just very different. Like from the get when he's like, when James Franco asks, you know, you ever get robbed? And he tells him, Oh, sure enough, hey, two times attempted. I should say, one fell, I shot dead. Bingo! The other I held for the marshal. Both his legs were shredded. Some had to lock him in the vault there. Marshal don't come through but once a month, and he just visited the previous week. Had to billet that scamp for what? Three weeks applying a poultice of wet leaves and urine. He's inhuman now.
as if like warning the guy that as kooky as he looks, he's not to be trifled with. James Franco trifles with him and ends up in trouble. Uh, and this guy is brutal. How great is Steven Root? I mean, fantastic. Were you a, a news radio fan? I was a news radio fan. That Always character could great. have been very, very stock, and he brought something a little bit different to it. He always does. He is also, I mean, office space. Yeah. I mean, you know, just an iconic character uh, in office space. What is his first credit? Crocodile Dundee 2. DEA agent in brackets, toilet. <laughs> hey, we've, we've all got to start somewhere. Ooh, then he does monkey shines. Have you seen monkey shines? I haven't, but I... I, uh, I would like to see that. Uh, I wonder if it's any good. Eh. Tucci's in it. Steven Root. Joyce Van Patten. John Pankow. Jason Begay. Bay, the former Scientologist. Jason Bay. Oh, was, the, yeah, yeah. The guy that's guy? now on Chicago... Chicago Fly. Or PD. Chicago the, PD. Chicago something. <laughs> Chicago, Chicago Civil Bureau. Servants. Jason Bay, is that how you say it? Jason Beg? Sure. Begay? B-E-G-H-E. If you're going to be a working actor, you got to change that to something that <laughs> is immediately true. recognizable for me. I, I just can't. It's like, I don't have the time to try and figure out how to pronounce your name. Yeah. I'm just going to call him Jason Bay. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it's an actorly spelling, right? Wait, you think you think he changed it to be more confusing? Thinking I think sometimes actors do that, don't they? It's like, you know, uh, well, this isn't an so now I'm about to cite an example that doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about, <laughs> thereby undermining my point. Engelbert Humperdinck, that's a great example. To, you, to launch this that? career that had been stalled, his manager said, you know what we need to do? We need to change your name to something people will go, what the fuck is that? So wow. they came up with Engelbert Humperdinck, which was a reference to a Hungarian composer or Czech composer or something. And uh, of course, once you hear Engelbert Humperdinck, you go, you don't forget. You don't forget it. Absolutely. Now, wow. Jason Bay, Jason Begay, Jason Beeg, Jason Boog. I don't know if we've talked about Scientology on the podcast. We haven't. But I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Scientologist. Huge. No. <laughs> <laughs> I am someone who loves to go down the wormhole of former Scientologists. Right. And I love to read all the books and I love to watch all the documentaries. Uh, anyway, Jason Bay, Jason Begay, he is a former Scientologist and has participated in a bunch of projects. He is exactly the sort of, at the time, vulnerable, working, wannabe actor that I think they prey upon. Yeah, like a handsome guy arrives in Hollywood. How do you differentiate yourself from sort of everybody else and getting somebody to- You cozy up to like Cruise in Scientology, of yeah. course. Or you cozy up to Scientology itself, that they're like- I we guess, can, they offer we can them, help you. We can help you. Yeah. It's, it's sort of networking, but- uh, yeah. A little bit, a little bit something else. Okay. Well, Monkey Shines, this is one of those pitches that yeah. I am. You're all in. I am all in. I'm sort of surprised <laughs> that I haven't had a chance to, Give us to the actually pitch. watch it yet. Give us the pitch. Well, the IMDb. Um, Just uh, present it as if it's your own, Chris. <laughs> okay, this is 2018. You don't need to cite resources. <laughs> a quadriplegic man has a trained monkey helping with his paralysis. I'm already in. Don't say anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Don't ruin it. Just go shoot it. Here's the check. Yeah. I just think the leap of logic required to say a paraplegic man has a trained monkey. Like right yeah, there. animals are not. You're already uh, like, that's not even a thing. A trained monkey to help you as a paraplegic. I mean, I guess I don't, that, that's, that's just like, okay, sure. I mean, if they have um, seeing eye horses, then I guess they can have a... Uh, <laughs> They don't have seeing eye horses. Yeah, people have miniature. No, they do not, Chris. You, you Google it right now. They don't have seeing eye horses. 
You mean like you walk around with yes. it on a leash? No, don't See, tell me that's, a, that's a, like a comfort animal, like a support animal. A guide horse is an alternative mobility option for blind people who do not wish or cannot use a guide dog. They are provided by the Guide Horse Foundation, founded in 1999 to provide miniature horses as assistance animals to blind users living in rural environments. So wait, do you <laughs> have the same sort of um, connection device between yourself yeah. and the guide horse? Oh, okay. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by the award-winning comedy series Philly Court. It's like a fake Judge Judy, but if way more of the cases involved Percocet and illegal fireworks. Philly Court Season 2, premiering now on Facebook. Just like and follow Chuckler Comedy on Facebook for the latest episodes. Philly Court did not actually win any awards, my dude, but the guys in Vinny's called it awesome, except for Brian Welsh, who's a fucking dumbass anyways, and I'm going to beat his ass for stealing my twisted tees. Uh, Bow to Buster Shrugs, great. Loved the near Al Godona's <laughs> segment with Stephen Root and James Franco. Were you a little jarred to see James Franco on screen post all the, the drama, the Me Too stuff that had come out in relation to him? Yes and no. I found it, I'm not going to say jarring, but it's indicative of the time we're living in where when you see an actor on screen now, after this stuff comes out, fairly, unfairly, I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know what the truth of the matter is, but it does, it, it breaks it, yeah. the spell of what I'm looking at because that's the first thing I thought when I, I thought, wow, I haven't seen him in a movie since that stuff all happened. Yeah. Because I think the last movie prior to all that happening was uh, the Room movie. But that was after, I, I think. That, maybe that, I that was at the same time. At the same time, right. At the same time. And then since then, there have been... The Deuce. Yeah, I don't watch The Deuce. I think I watched why. one episode because I was auditioning for an episode. They did not. They didn't me. take you. That's their loss, man. Yeah, that, and that's why... What I was the part? Uh, a John for one of, the, uh, mm. one of the prostitutes. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but I think you'd be great as a, as a John... <laughs> I'm a, I would be a very generous and giving job. Oh, you mean, sorry, you mean as an actor? On. Yes. Sorry. sorry. Yes, I, mean, I think <laughs> that you, you would embody this sort. I, could, I can just imagine already what the scene is. Like maybe they'd want to do a different type of John, like yeah. an experienced John, like a, the type of like truck driver John who this is a transactional thing. But I see you more as like the naif, the tourist John, yeah. the guy who finds himself in Times Square maybe with his army buddies and he's the one that sort of is naive and maybe virginal and they, they take him and he becomes deflowered. That, that's the part I yeah. can see for you. I, I, you know, and I, I'm up for it. If yeah. they do include that scene in season three. Do you ever have this experience, which is the experience I have with the deuce, which is on paper, it's everything I'm interested in. Like I'm interested in pornography. <laughs> Yeah, prostitution. No, 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 yeah, yeah, not yeah. pornography, prostitution. Crime, the underworld, New York as it used to be, the yeah. seedy underbelly, uh, a noir kind of vibe. Um, I like the actors that are in it. But from the minute I encountered it, I was put off by it and sort of not ever interested enough to check it out. And I don't know why that is. Uh, so, yeah, I, I also don't have HBO, so that's partially why I haven't gotten around to, uh, uh, to watching it. Just do you have anything like that where there's it? something set in a world that you are fascinated by and for, for whatever reason you just don't want like there are uh, here, here's other examples of that that are probably more common for people mm -hmm. like for example i'm a big mystery reader one of the mystery series i like a lot in the procedural genre is well let me let me go one level further the los angeles procedural genre which is its own thing um, but the bosch novels by michael connelly mm -hmm. and there's a pretty successful amazon television series Friends made, and i love it 
And a lot of people I know love it. Um, I've avoided it because I love the books so much that to watch a conception of it, no matter how good it is on television, it, I don't want that. Yeah. Um, and part of it is, and this goes back to when I was so irritated by the timeline issues in Bohemian Rhapsody, um, one of the big changes in the Bosch Amazon series is in the books, he's a Vietnam veteran who was a tunnel rat. He would crawl through the tunnels looking for the enemy mm. in the tunnel systems in Vietnam. Uh, but because Titus Welliver is playing Bosch in the contemporary time frame of Los Angeles in the Amazon series, he's now an Afghanistan-Iraq war vet. So right there, you lost me because, I mean, my God, this is the, this is the, the whole thing is about the character. Like, it's just a fundamental disconnect between what you as a fan of the books expect. But I suppose there's a pretty brutal business decision, which is, However many of there are of me who are a fan of the Bosch books, there's probably a hell of a lot more people who will be a fan of the TV series without even really knowing about the books. Yeah. So that's no, probably what I they do. like to think that it's not always a, a strict business decision in the way that you're putting it. Like, they made the decision, we're moving Bosch to today, as opposed to... Well, the other novels take place in today. It's just that the character is 65, 70 well, years old it, but, because but he, he was a Vietnam vet. here as opposed to there... Presumably the first Bosch novel, he was roughly Titus Welliver's age now, right? Probably, yes. That's, that's yeah. what I meant, that they're yeah. like, okay, we're going to start it, but yeah. start the timeline here as opposed to starting the timeline there. And they try to think, like, what is the most important aspect, aspect of, the character of the character that, that they're trying to keep? This is something I think about, because when you ask about things that uh, that you should like yes. but sort of don't, for me, comic book adaptations, particularly sure. movies and, and TV, partially because I think they kind of have to narrow things and, and they toss out some elements of it. I mean, if you got to narrow things in a comic book, I mean, are we really talking about a broadness that can't be captured in a characterization on screen? Well, I mean, I guess I meant narrow it in terms of like the continuity of, of somebody like that. You take Superman or Batman is probably a better mm -hmm. Batman who's been around for now 80, what? Uh, 83 years. years. So, but, yeah, so anyway. but that's a lot of stories that go go sure. on in there. And the thing that's particularly interesting about a comic book superhero is their legend is sort of made up by each of those stories without sort of somebody thinking about it. They just become, they sort of accrue mm -hmm. these things. That's where the history kind of comes from because it's a different kind of form than a novel. You know, it comes out monthly as opposed right. to a novel which comes out every year, you know. So um, in adapting it, you think about, well, you can't sort of have all of that or you can't sort of tilt and nod to every element of the continuity that, that a fan might want, what is the essence of the character? What is the most important thing? Which is an interpretational question which any kind of adaptation is going to sure. do. So so I've become a little bit more, um, I guess, generous or mm -hmm. a little bit less judgmental about that stuff. Yeah. But it's still, to me, you know, I, I don't tend to love most of the, the comic book and superhero movies that have been made just because of that, because they are to me, the stories are conceived for a certain medium and, and all I see are the sacrifices. Two of the segments in uh, The Ballad of Buster Struggs are adapted from um, from pre-existing material. Yes. The uh, All Gold Canyon story, which is the Tom Waits prospector story, um, is based on a story by Jack London. And the gal, uh, the gal Who Got Rattled is based on a story by Stuart Edward White, who is similarly a writer from, from, a, from the era of the West that we're talking about. Um, and I would say those are the two, those have um, the richer vein to mine to, to steal an analogy from All Gold Canyon. Mm -hmm. I always think it's interesting. What are the adaptations we like? 
I don't know, you know, it sounds like maybe you don't stay away quite as much as I do sometimes. I'm a little more protective of the books yeah. that I really love and have experiences with. And there's not many of them, but but the ones that I feel a certain way about, um, I'm going to be really protective of going and Well, it's pretty interesting in this case because I think, like, I think both you and I, and tell me if I'm mis misinterpreting what you're saying, that the ones that were written by other people were in some ways the most successful. Yes, I agree with you. I think those two were the... Um, had the most going for them. And in reading uh, an interview with the with the Cohen brothers, they they do talk about their writing process and their, the difference between their writing process normally and their writing process of adaptation. And they're like, "Look, if you got they specifically with No Country Old Men, they're like, it's a great book. Like, what are we supposed to what do? Are you to supposed to do? Yeah. And the kind of I guess the humility that that sort of shows and the, the judgment uh, that they're the way they they're looking at adaptation is probably a smart way to do it. Yeah. And to go way back to all you full cast and crew completists. I remember you talking about uh, Stanley Kubrick yes. for 2001, write a book about it, then adapt the book. Correct. And I think that there's there's a similar thing here of recognizing when the, the book actually gets you into the character and gets everything there, you can adapt it in a visual medium. As long as that scaffolding is laid down by a good novelist or good writer, you have that to work with. And there's no need to invent anything. It's about showing what is already there. My biggest criticism is uh, they were too similar, all six of them. The tone and the blend of comedy and uh, pathos, dar darkness and pathos was pretty, like I wish that one was like markedly shorter. One would have been a little bit darker, you know, that there was some variance in it. Because each of the individual things would, I think if I'd seen it alone, I'd be like, wow, that was really good, really interesting, it made me think. But once you put them together, it does start to feel a little bit repetitive. Who knows? Maybe there. That just makes me lose some of the subtlety because I'm sure they're ordered in such and such a way, starting with the the most cartoonish and leading to the one that's closest to sort of death. I, I think the answer is it's probably pretty arbitrary, and I think it 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 plays better as as a collection of standalone things you could watch when you mm -hmm. wanted to on Netflix than it does as a whole movie. One thing that you just said that I think is so is so on spot with this. There was a thing that I actually ended up liking which was in almost all of them, the stories ambled and wandered so far at times where I was just wondering, where is this going? But then when it took the turn that it inevitably took, the, the bagginess of the journey ended up paying dividends. Yeah. Um, one example of that is in the meal ticket segment yeah. with Liam Neeson, um, which I both really liked but thought was twice as long as it needed to be. The whole middle section where Harry Melling, shout out for uh, Harry Potter fans, Dudley Dursley uh, makes an appearance as the wingless thrush, a, a mm -hmm. armless and legless uh, actor and orator of immense skill and capability. I met a traveler in an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs stand in the desert near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command love this because to me this was just about the indignities of the acting profession um i loved that he's replaced by a chicken yeah um shout out to franz kafka it's kind of like the hunger artist I knew that you would take care of that Kafka-esque <laughs> heavy lifting. Uh, Liam Neeson is so good in this set. Like when there's not a lot going on, like there was through much of the meal ticket segment, 
I found myself just being so thankful that Liam Neeson was there because with his face alone, he could do so much. Um, Can I ask you, because this is, this is one where the book plate yeah. affected the way that I view thematically. You mean the first book plate or when you saw the last bit of the writing when they closed the book plate? The book plate. So the beginning book The plate. beginning part. Yes. But it was all, so Because of the photo? In reading a review of it, somebody mentioned what had been on the book. Plate. I don't remember I what was the photo. It was a, oh, I don't remember what the, the quote under it was a quote from the Merchant of Venice, yeah. that the quality of mercy right, is right. not strained. So when the, it does come to the end, and spoiler for Buster Scruggs, you know, <laughs> the implication is he kills this guy and replaces him with a chicken. When watching it, I thought about the uh, the indignity of the actor. Now here's like a performance thing and. And you have this seemingly yes. intimate relationship. Yeah, he feeds him. He wipes his face. And so you assume a kind of emotional connection. Yes. That ultimately is like, eh, listen, that hey, chicken's chicken. good. But so you know I'm what? Drop him off the thing. But thinking that the quality of mercy is not strained, that that Shakespeare quote is the idea that goes along with that story, made me rethink it and wonder if if this is meant to be seen as like a mercy killing actually carting wingless thrush along in this life where he can do nothing and is fed, that instead of this being a kindness that Liam Neeson's character is doing, that it's almost like not allowing him to die. And I don't want to sound ableist about it, but but because look, all he does with this guy is make money off it. Like this is the guy's, uh, the wingless thrush becomes- Well, the segment's called way of, Meal Ticket. Yeah. That's what the wingless thrush is. Which I totally get, but is it about- no, see, I take a much cynicism or finding a replacement. Cynicism, like finally, you cynicism. Can, you can be, uh, you can, you, I can let you out of this. No, I, I think life. it is. It's the Cohen brothers. It's called the meal ticket. The darkness and the cynicism to me was left off screen. I think that the reality is, once I saw the chicken who can pick the numbers, you know, that's a that's a that's a classic carnival barker scam. And I think the undercurrent that's left unsaid was that. Liam Neeson is going to get to his next destination and find out that the chicken cannot pick any numbers. Yeah. And he's going to realize that he got rid of his meal ticket. And now he's just a guy. The scam is actually the selling of the chicken. That's what the previous guy is brilliant at. Yeah. He sets that up and then he knows there's going to be some other sucker like Liam Neeson yeah. who's working his own vaudevillian scam who's going to say, oh my God, there is the cutaway to Liam Neeson's face as the very last shot and he looks unresolved. He's not quite certain of what he had done mm-hmm. and, it, and it's left there. Um, but to me, it was such a dark thing where I, that's where I saw it going. I saw him realizing at the next town that he'd been had, not only had he been had, but that his own venality caused him to kill someone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The one I enjoyed the most, uh, all gold country with Tom Waits. Yeah. I loved the simplicity of it. I love the beauty of it. My God. Telluride, California. I mean, Jesus Christ. Colorado. Did I say California? You did. Yeah. I meant Colorado. Okay. Even though I just almost said California again. <laughs> Colorado. California. As if by sheer force of will, you could pick up Telluride and move it. It's been a long week. It's Wednesday, but it's been I, a long week already. Um, I loved the way the animals fled from man so that the fish turned in the stream and swam away. The owl flew away from the tree. The elk. When you have Tom Waits in something, it works both ways. If you don't know anything, if you don't know anything about Tom Waits, then the actor embodies the part perfectly without the backstory that we who might know Tom Waits imbue him with. But he also can totally fit the role without knowing any of that and is a good enough actor to pull it off. It's such a weird mashup of natural beauty and splendor and ruthless 
true crime storytelling. And it's also the only one where the main character lives. Is that end. true? He survives. He makes it through. I guess you're right. I mean, well, except for the last one. Well, we don't know in the last one. Well, I was about to say, the last one, it's a little bit more ambiguous. But certainly, yeah, you know, that's true. Uh, Buster Scruggs dies. James, James uh, Franco dies, dies. Zoe Kazan dies. Uh, Meal Ticket dies. Even though Meal Ticket dies. But, but he yeah, did. you're right. Annapurna dies. Yeah. What? <laughs> the production company? Yeah. Think, you think this film is going to be... No, I think Jason's side. This film will be the end of Annapurna no, I think Pictures. I think Vice is going to be the end of Annapurna Pictures. Yeah. yeah, well, listen, they'll go out with a bang. My, my um, thing with Vice, Chris, is I don't think... And I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I'm an independent. <laughs> In the history of the world, no one has begun something with what I just said and had anything interesting come out of the mouth <laughs> after that. <laughs> No, but what I was going to say is I don't think liberals do Republicans well in movies. It's too freighted all the time to get a bloodless take that I'd rather see than a villainous I'll kind tell of... you what, though, but, but I mean, just from the trailer, it is certainly not being marketed as a bloodless take. I mean, it's being marketed as a um, takedown. A takedown. But that's what I'm saying. I think the more fascinating thing would be the nuanced take. Yeah, maybe. Hand-wringing, I'm going to use this to line my pockets. That's part of the story, yes, um, but I get at least from the trailer, that the comic take on the character is going to be fairly one-dimensional. Sure. But, but, I don't, but again, I haven't seen the movie. Who so. knows? Yeah, but it could work great. But that's uh, an aesthetic that's very now. Everybody really does like political they humor. Do. And, yeah. and politics have become Gee, an, I wonder why. an education. What's <laughs> going on in our country? Yeah, who knows? Okay. And, but one last thing is, when you saw the trailer for Vice, yes. you loved it. I you did. have been talking about it a lot. I'm, I'm surprised to hear your uh, opinions. Well, I want. I guess it's because I'd read the big short and loved the book. Back to my earlier point. Uh -huh. um, I did not like the movie, although I liked some aspects of the movie very much. Just the whole other conceit of it and the way it was unfolded and the the sort of faux trickery of the narrative devices and the graphics and stuff like that. It just... I think there's a better story in the book than was brought to the screen, but I understand why the majority of audiences that saw it loved it and had mm -hmm. a good experience mm -hmm. with it. Uh, although I don't have any source material for Dick Cheney that I'm passionate about. <laughs> so um, as long as they get the, the shotgun scene right, I'm all yeah. good, you know? Oh, I want to see that guy taken in the face. Anyway, all gold country. Any other thoughts? Like you said, it was physically beautiful to look at. Yeah. And also I think it was in some ways the most thematically clear. I don't want to sound like I want to be spoon fed, but this seemed to just, just, just enough, a little bit more coherent in a way. A little on the nose. That this idea of violence intruding into bucolic beauty, but then actually the bucolic beauty survives. The violence yes. will kind of leave. The fish return. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today. The Girl Who Got Rattled um, was another one where it wasn't really until the turn at the end. Should we spoil it? Yeah, spoil, spoil the shit out of it. If you guys have gotten this far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the, the setup in The Girl Who Got Rattled is that Zoe, Zoe Kazan plays a woman traveling across the Oregon Trail with her brother who then dies and she... Uh, and one of the, what do you call him? He's cutting trail. He's a cut trail. He's a trail cutter. Sure, trail. He's a trail cutter. Trail cutter. Played by Bill Hack, who is so good in this. For the entirety of this sequence, 
you're really focused on Zoe Kazan and Bill Heck. And Bill Heck's boss, who's this irascible old trail cutter, is not really much of a character other than something you can imagine Bill Heck wanting to get away from and settle down with a wife. Yeah. And that's what he tries to do. He proposes to Zoe Kazan, and, and I think they're going to give it a go. And then... Trail this, boss. Trail, trail boss. Cutter. Yeah, trail boss. Because I was just trying to look up Trail Cutter, and it's like, that's a <laughs> fictional character from the Transformers universe. It's like, oh, that must not been, another? <laughs> that must have been what I was thinking yeah, about. honest mistake. Sorry, um, trail boss. So then, Bill, then the story gets completely handed off to the trail boss. And all of a sudden, this actor conveys so much more depth and interesting qualities than we'd been shown before in this sequence. And the spoiler alert is, they get attacked uh, by Indians, and he gives her a pistol, and he says, look, if, if it looks like it's going to be the end, there's one bullet for you, and if I get injured, I need you to, well, I guess it would work the other way. Shoot him first, then shoot yourself. Take this. No. Take it. Take it now. Got two bullets in it. Ain't for shooting Indians. If I see we're licked, I'm going to shoot you and then I'm going to shoot myself. So that's okay. But if you see that I'm done for, well, you're going to have to do for yourself. Now you put it right there so you can't miss. In another great piece of Baroque killing, it appears that the trail boss is killed by an Indian and he falls off his horse. And as the Indian came over to scalp him, the trail boss shoots the Indian who dies, and then the trail boss comes over to check on Zoe Kazan, who, thinking he was dead, had shot herself. And he has a great line where he says, Poor little girl. She hadn't ought to have did it. Hadn't of ought to have did it. I love that. The poignancy of when he's walking back and you can see Bill Heck coming up the hill. This is actually a moment where this, the, the, the script yeah. that you could see in the book, I didn't like it in that. I prefer oh, oh. an ambiguous ending in that scenario. This is another one that I thought was was really intricate in the, I think what the ideas behind it were. Mm -hmm. When it's focusing on Zoe Kazan and Bill Heck, it's also focusing on on two people sort of discovering the ability to be intimate with each other. Sure. And for Bill Heck, he's leaving the trail boss life. life behind. And then you get to see the older trail boss, Mr. Arthur, demonstrating, I guess, the more stereotypically manly yes. side and in some ways, while even though he seems to be protecting Zoe Kazan's character, he ends up victimizing her. It doesn't pass judgment and say, like, yeah. oh, here's a horrible patriarchal thing, but it is the sort of rules of the patriarchy sure. that lead her to yeah. waste her life. And I thought that was... She got rattled. It's right there in the title. But he, she got rattled. She he rattled her. He rattled her. Yeah. Well, but we're shown her before. She's she's not a character of certitude and but she's and growing. steel. I mean, she's, the fact she's, that she's growing. There's because she had fo followed the yapping dog. She had of seen course. the, the prairie. She was laughing. I think part of the point that you just mentioned is true, which is that she was blossoming and becoming herself once freed from the constraints that were put upon her by the conventions of the time and her brother, and the. The sadness and the sad reality and the sad irony of life at this time is that life was difficult. There's a lot of things that could kill you as you made your way on the Oregon Trail. Um, and she fell prey to that before she could become herself wholly. Yeah. This was the segment that I saw someone had written the article saying that the portrayal of the Native Americans was one-dimensional and bloodthirsty savages, um, you know, given no political backstory to their actions. But again, since to me, the whole thing, if there was a filter over it, the filter over it was the conventions of the movies about the American West yeah. and and subverting and playing with those and also being true to them in some places. However, 
I take the point. It is a fair point. I always like to trust, I guess, the, the artist and that they made a deliberate choice. Yeah. They probably fully know all of those arguments and they're saying, but to introduce those things would make the story about something else. Yes. The thing that we are trying to do is to talk about America's conception of the Old West by keeping them, keeping the Native Americans in a, in a monodimensional space is acknowledging like that's, that's what we've been doing. What I am talking about is this woman's blossoming, but then being, being um, killed by the instructions of a, of a morality that she is given by, by somebody else. But also the truism I think is that it's men because yeah, the Native Americans have rifles and guns, which they've only gotten through exposure and from the white men that they are portrayed in conflict with. Yeah. And so to me, the larger point is also the violence that men wrought with each other. The pointed use of the rifles and, and it being a gun battle raises that point of like what was spoiled in exposure. It's sort of like when you have cultures that are exposed to Western culture and, and all of a sudden, all of the brain rotting things that we bring to the table, like guns and yeah. Bibles. I'll go there. Religion. <laughs> I'll go there, Chris. Yeah. But that was an affecting segment, even though as up until the dog returned and the trail boss went up the hill to go find her, I was sort of losing interest because it was kind of getting a little shaggy. Uh, but then after that, the appreciation I had for the assurance that they had in that trail boss character all the time that I'd been sort of letting my attention wander a little bit between the two other characters was kind of rewarded. Yeah. And then the last and weirdest segment, the mortal, mortal remains. remains. Eh, okay. <laughs> I mean, at first I was like, wow, acting masterclass. The first few minutes of the scene of the scene were fantastic. I was laughing at Chelsea Ross's long story yeah. about his Native American wife. Cheaper called me tedious. Tedious. Me. If tidings from the greater world are tedious, I would descend from the mountains not having talked for many months with much to tell. Much to tell, having stored considerable. Though for many years I did not live alone in the wild, I did have a consort, a stout woman of the hunk Papa Sue. We had a companionship of sorts, but there is a lady present. It was timed so brilliantly. Like, this is, a, this is a subtle point, which I will belabor. When you have a scene like that, which is intended to go on too long, and that's where the comedy is. Yeah. You can either just have it go on too long and nothing that's being said is of interest. And so it's a one note joke because you're aware that something else should happen, but the tension hasn't been broken by that thing happening yet. But the thing the character is talking about isn't interesting enough to hold your attention. So you're aware of the, the joke time. as it's going on. But to me, what was brilliant about this was a combination of the, the screenplay, what Chelsea Ross was saying as an actor, as the trapper, was so fascinatingly brilliant and hilarious as it was going that I, I was so with his story, even as it was going on too long. And then when that was over, I thought a lot of the air went out of the scene. I don't know, the fact that it was just like bounty hunters bounty, transported yeah. in a body, and that, the bounty, that they really just happened to be sitting there with these people, well, I don't think you know that. I think it's still, I think it's played for you to not be sure whether that's just what it is or not, right? I guess. I thought the point of the scene was it's either they're all dead and they don't know it yet, or they're just going to a hotel in a spooky town. Yeah. Well, look, a, a reviewer encapsulated the ending very well of the hesitation, the uh, 
everybody has getting out of the carriage to follow them into the hotel, and then the yeah. you know, Frenchman closes the door. You Let's know, go find out. Gotta go, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, I can't wait out here all night. Like, you gotta, gotta go do see something. What, what happens next. And I get that. But I think what the bounty hunters actually had to say was pretending it was more interesting yes, than it was. I agree. Not, nothing against Brendan Gleason or JoJo O'Neill or John John. John Joe. John, oh, great. I gotta talk about an actor name. John Joe O'Neill. That was the one place where I thought the quirkiness was a little bit too much uh, to actually take away from menacing feeling of the story. And again, like I said, I wish there was a, a modulation in tone. Yeah. If, if some of the other stories were darker, maybe I wouldn't have minded another humorous thing like that at the end. I uh, thought it was the one that didn't work. It, it didn't work the most for me. Yeah. Uh, here's a good Though, quote. Like you said, the, that story. <laughs> is, the story was great. spends a lot of time with tedious people. And Chelsea, and Chelsea Ross. Here's a good quote from New York Times film reviewer A.O. Scott, who I think nailed it with this line. He said, genre for the Coens is not a church or an archive. It's a playroom. Yeah. You know, if you say American West in the 1800s, you're given a set of tropes and common shared visual well, like the, images that you can play with. To make the distinction you made a couple hours ago. Uh, <laughs> Has it been that it's long? Not really, it's not really about American. It's about our conception via Westerns. And these are filmmakers who talk about how much they watched stuff growing up. And I think all of their movies are so informed by, uh, by other films. What are your favorite Coen Brothers movies, just in conclusion here? Uh, Raising Arizona to me is, you've said this about a movie or two, that is something that if I see a second of oh. it, everything else stops. Totally with you. I think that's the first time I saw a movie that contained such a specifically twisted comedic worldview that yeah. I so entirely identified with, even as, even as I had no connection to what the story was about or where yeah. it was set. And the opening scene where he's listening to his cellmate tell the story of how impoverished he was as a child. I just, I'm with you. That yeah. is a classic, classic movie. On the other side of it, Miller's Crossing was also one that I loved. I saw it after Raising Arizona and I was amazed that it was the same filmmakers. All right-thinking people love The Big Lebowski, but I don't know that it's as particular to me. I just enjoy that watching it with other people. Can I give you a hot take? Big Lebowski doesn't do anything for me. Never, wow. never has. You know, I think you should see a doctor about that. Uh, you know what? I just to me, it's a one-note joke extended throughout the entirety of a movie. No, I, I hear you, but I guess that's why to me the ex it's less about watching it to experience it myself. It's with other people and sort of laughing about it. It's sort of so quotable and fun and almost bite-sized. For me, um, Raising Arizona, Blood Simple, I Fargo. Seen Blood Simple in a long time. You know, those those three. Th that's the foundation. Fargo. I mean, my God, Fargo to me. Now, I haven't actually even seen the TV. This is another one. So that's a TV series I've stayed away from watching because that movie is is a movie, if it's ever on, I find it very hard not to watch the entire thing, including the brilliant, excruciatingly uncomfortable scene in the restaurant between her cop character and Mike. Do you remember that scene? I, I'll be, no. No? Oh my God, you got to play that scene, Chris. Better times, huh? Better times. Oh, and then I saw you on the TV, and uh, I remembered, you know, I always liked you. Well, I always liked you. I always much. liked you so much. So, Mike, uh, should we get together another time, you think? No, I... I... 
I'm sorry. It's, uh, you know, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't. I, I thought we'd have a really terrific time. It's okay, Mike. You were such a super lady. And then, I been so lonely. It, it has nothing to do with the plot of the movie that we're in, but it reveals so much about the unerring decency of her character who faced with this unhinged kind of drunken, crazy person. Yes. Uh, still treats him with kindness and tries to make what for him is an excruciatingly awkward moment as comfortable as possible. Yeah. It's a, no, that's it's a fantastic. Scene. Now, yes. Shout out to whoever that guy is. You know, we haven't talked about, I think that might've been their first big, um, Award hit was uh, Barton Fink. I'm also not a big Barton Fink fan, huh? So I like that kind of. Uh... I, I would actually would want to. I, I would rewatch Miller's Crossing. Um, I can't remember it well enough to know what my issues were, but it probably was the tonal shift, which at the time would have been jarring because Blood Simple, which is genius, brilliant, noir, twisty, uh, and also has um, just such a great cast. Yeah. Um, I think seeing that, seeing Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing is probably an excellent sort of mafia movie that uses the genre as a playpen. Maybe the tonal shift was too much for me in 1990. But shout out to Blood Simple. M. Emmett Walsh, man. Yeah. God. Dan Hedaya. How great is Dan Hedaya? Dan Hedaya does not get credit for being as good and versatile as he is as an actor. I love Dan Hedaya. Is that uh, Nick Tortelli? Yes. Yeah. He's basically a support system for Five O'Clock Shadow. <laughs> Which is why he played Nixon. In, Indeed. Uh, you ever see uh, Dick? Yes. He also That's is fun. in one of my very favorite movies, which I will mention again, a civil action 1998's Steve Zalian film based on the book by Jonathan Haar, starring Jonathan, Tra Jonathan Travolta. Jonathan Travolta. My friend Jonathan Travolta, Robert Duvall. Jonathan, clean up your room. Kathleen Quinlan. Uh, Tony Jelko Ivanek, Joni Shalhoub. And my close personal friend, Bruce Norris, playing William Cheeseman. Um, and he's not primarily known as an actor. He's a playwright, yeah. Pulitzer winning yeah. playwright yep. at that. Yep. But he has some scenes with some heavyweights, man. We talk about going toe to toe with uh, Gandolfini, Duval, Travolta. He has scenes with all three of those guys. Who does uh, Bruce Norris play in it? He plays a lawyer for one of the corporations that's trying to cover up the poisoning of oh, the groundwater. He plays one of the bad guy lawyers. He, he plays one of the bad guy lawyers. Oh, here's a picture of him with Duval and... Uh, yeah, and Duval is, is so is good with John him. Lithgow? It's Lithgow. That is Lithgow is okay. the judge. It's such a great movie, Dan Hedaya. I don't know how we got on Dan Hedaya. From a civil action. No, but how do we get on civil action? From... Dan Hedaya. Uh, no, so, oh, because Dan Hedaya is in Blood Simple. Oh, right. That's how it got there. So, yeah. I would be interested to watch Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink again. You know, they, they work in so many different ways. Yeah. You have, or you don't have to. I mean, do whatever you, can do whatever you want. want, man. We're not, <laughs> uh, not here to tell you what to do. Uh, but be sort of ready to surrender to something. If you're not in the artsy mood, like, because that is a very operatic, baroque, artsy, fartsy. And, and I think when I was, whatever, 16, 17, when it came out, to see like an actual in a movie theater, somebody doing something that weird. Yeah. Uh, I was laughing it up. They have made fantastic use of John Goodman over the years. Yeah. You know, they've, they've given him some good things to do. He's fantastic in Raising Arizona. Yeah. As one of the... Um, and even though I know you don't love it, uh, Inside Lewin Davis. 
Uh, yes. He's, <laughs> yes. He's dark jazz man. Uh, yeah. You know, I just don't like when the joke's on me, Chris. Making me out to be a sap. That's just, it's not an experience well, I enjoy. Like, you know, this is... Um, but I guess, you honestly... You and I are in different, different, different interpretations of that. Like, to me, it's not making you a sap. It's if it's saying anything, it's that that those the, yeah. the high and the low are much closer than we than we I guess that's end. true and it, it owes a certain debt to Bob Dylan let's say it's sort of about the the puncturing of the pomposity which surrounded the whole thing at the time which was probably the point of the shit scene entirely uh-huh um, but I'm such a sap as I've told you recently when I'm now watching movies I apparently cry <laughs> and so Listen. that scene before the shit joke was so poignant and moving between a father and a son yeah that's why I was upset. Because mm-hmm. the joke was on me. Yeah. But that's okay, Chris. I'm a big boy. I can take it. Okay. I mean, this is the third podcast in a row where this is coming. <laughs> we haven't but, let it go. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> but if you say so. Well, don't we have to develop tropes in our podcast so that, you know, they become yeah, so like subtle. Know, oh, if we're talking so when we're at like town hall and we <laughs> mention the shit, everyone goes, everyone <laughs> applaud. Oh, yes. That's the shit. That's right. We have to. That's what I'm working for. Give me everything you can that'll build a fighting robot or whatever. We gotta start. I was actually listening. I was I was perusing one of the podcast threads on Reddit and somebody posted a really funny thing that was like, can somebody please tell podcast producers that the live episode in front of an audience is not good and it's not what we like as listeners? I thought, you know, that's so true that when you have a podcast that you like and then all of a sudden it's on the road, yeah. it sucks. Unless, well, unless you're one of the people that goes. And I, well, I, I yeah, that's, that's fine. But it should almost be for that. Like, yeah. we don't want to hear the version on stage with the audience reacting. It doesn't do anything for us. So I promise you and our listeners, Chris, when we tour the world, and, and our podcast is heard, as you know, in over 38 countries now around the world. That's amazing. Do you know how many countries there are in the world, Chris? 210. So, almost half-ish. Um, almost. Almost half almost of half. half. Oh, yeah, that's right. Almost, almost. Well, I'm saying we took care of the big ones. Yeah. You know, yeah, who cares Africa, about whatever's like, like the continent. We're more continentally. <laughs> I was going to say, like, yeah, Africa's not a. No, we're continentally represented on every, all seven continents were represented. Yeah, we got, we got some yes. American murder station. In oh, North no, we didn't get, we didn't get Greenland. Is that a continent? No. Well, uh, what's it part of? North America? Uh, yeah, I guess. Maybe Europe. No, it's separated. It's an island. Sure. But I mean, but part of the continent. It's Australia, Antarctica, North America, South America, Asia, Europe, and Africa. Hmm. Did you hear? Well, that's what, the, that's what the government wants you to think. <laughs> well, I mean, they are the ones who sort of make these arbitrary distinctions. By the way, did you hear the story today that um, <laughs> birds are a government conspiracy? They're government-issued drones. Birds aren't real is a movement wow. on Instagram, Reddit, and Twitter. Uh, that's awesome. I'm going to look that up. There's apparently a town in Germany, I forget what it's called, like there's a conspiracy that that isn't there. And if you talk to anybody who says they're from there, they're like, <laughs> that's just the government told you. Supposedly Finland is also a lie. Oh, well, of course, everyone knows that. <laughs> that's actually just a, a sort of an inland ocean where yes. they, the Russians and the Japanese did not want to argue over the fishing rights, so they get to fish I there. See. And everybody who thinks they live in Finland actually lives in, <laughs> I guess, Eastern Sweden or Western whatever, you know. Well, the Birds Are Real movement claims that the CIA took out 12 billion birds. Because, one by one. <laughs> because directors within the CIA were annoyed that the birds had been shitting on their car windows. So the birds were killed between 59 and 71 
with stuff being spread through the atmosphere. Yeah. Chemtrails. So, so the planes were stocked with poison and they were used to eradicate 12 billion birds, which were then replaced with bird robots <laughs> that are used to surveil Americans. Uh, I just, on the first thing on Reddit's uh, birds aren't real. Um, yeah. <laughs> Here's a horrifying thought. If birds aren't real, then what exactly is everyone eating at Thanksgiving? Ooh, good point. Oh my God. The Soil and green is people. I'll be honest. I first came to this sub to laugh at the idiots who don't believe in birds. <laughs> but. Which is exactly why I'm here, so I'm listening. But the smirk was quickly wiped off my face as I started scrolling page after page of undeniable incontrovertible ironclad scientific proof. So, wow. Wow, I can't wait. On Reddit? No less. <laughs> it's been right there this whole time. Wow, amazing. Well, that's another episode of Full Cast and Crew. I'm Jason. I'm Chris. See, that works well to do that. And we can invite everybody to subscribe. Sure. Because uh, well, I've been tacking that on in the end. I know, I listened to that uh, on the end. I just heard your little addendum. I so I think we should switch to a strategy of the illusion of, of difficult <laughs> exclusivity. It should be like, if you can figure out how to communicate with us, we'd love to hear from that, you. Right, this but I'm not going to read off all the Instagrams you. and Facebooks and Twitters. Oh, and muck who thinks that birds are real. You know what I mean? Like, if you want to find Chris and I, do your homework and find us. <laughs>